We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, we're going to get started again here with our scripture reading. We are in Second Chronicles 18, Second Chronicles and the 18th chapter. All right, Second Chronicles and chapter 18, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab. That is a real head-scratcher, you know. Why did he do that? He should have known better. After some years, he went down uh, to visit Ahab in Samaria. You know, you've got to see the in-laws, right? And uh, Ahab killed sheep and oxen in abundance for him and the people who were with him and persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth-Gilead. So Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And he answered him, I am as you are and my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. Another head-scratching mistake there, isn't it? Also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Now, what's going to happen here is just mind-boggling how this shakes out, so to speak. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here, that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he never prophesies good concerning me. I wonder why. But always evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called one of his officers and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, clothed in their robes, each sat, sorry, sat each on his throne, and they sat at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaah, uh, sorry, Chanana, had made horns of iron for himself. And he said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. Then the messengers who had, messenger who had gone down to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Therefore, please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. Boy, that's not trying to put your finger or thumb on the scale at all, is it? And Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that I will speak. Okay, good for him. Very good. Then he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And he said, go and prosper and they shall be delivered into your hand. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. 
And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I return in peace. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead. Now, why did Jehoshaphat do that? You have all this clear revelation that he should not be involved. He knows he shouldn't be allied to Ahab. He shouldn't agree to share troops with him, to go to battle with him. He's heard from a prophet of God. He knows it's a prophet of God. Uh, he's heard the message that this is all set up so that uh, Ahab would die at Ramoth-Gilead. He should have just said, well, Ahab, you're on your own. See you later. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. That's another dumb idea, but anyway. So the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of the chariots who were with him, saying, Fight with no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, It's the king of Israel. Therefore they surrounded him to attack. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. For so it was when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. The battle increased that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. And about the time of sunset, he died. What a sad accounting of a very wicked king, wasn't he? Yes. All right. Well, let's put that aside for now and turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 21, please. Follow along in the Scriptures, Matthew chapter 21. If you were here Wednesday, you know that we addressed the triumphal entry in verses 1 through 11. We saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem, uh, instructing about the uh, donkey and the colt, 
riding that colt in very humbly. That was a symbol of his humility coming into town, not on a great white steed as conqueror, but as a humble um, person, a humble king. Uh, But uh, the people did recognize him as the son of David. They cried out, Hosanna, save now, we pray, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Multitudes were answering those uh, people, hey, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth uh, in Galilee. Uh, And so he comes into the city. Now, it says, uh, well, let me say this. I'm, I'm struck in the initial reading that Jesus went into Jerusalem visited the temple, saw it needed some tidying up, and then cleaned it out in preparation for his work the next few days. He was cleaning out his workspace, so to speak. You know, um, When Jesus came into the city, he was making a public announcement of himself as the king of the nation. But as we'll see, they very uh, hard-heartedly rejected him. As far as the chronology is concerned here, we look at verses 12 and 13. It's, it's like he comes into the city and then he went into the temple and cleansed it out immediately. But Matthew compresses some events here. Mark 11 adds this, that between his entry in to the, to the city and his cleansing of the temple, between those two events, it kind of spreads them out. And it says, actually, he entered the city, looked around, and then left the city and stayed out in Bethany and came back. And in the morning on the next day, Monday it would be, he cleansed out the temple. So there is a compression of the events here. We also know that in that rough period of time, going out, coming back, that there was the matter of the fig tree that he cursed. You remember that? Um, and uh, you see, this, so the events are actually kind of moved around a little bit in Matthew's accounting of it. Um, and we don't have to hold him to a strict chronological account. It's not necessary for the purpose that he's trying to accomplish. So um, he uh, retired to Bethany for the evening. On the way back to the city, he encountered a fruitless fig tree, which was a perfect illustration of the fruitless city that he had just observed. Then he went into the temple and cleaned it out after pondering overnight what he was going to do. I think that's uh, interesting, perhaps, uh, what happened. He saw everything, went back, thought over what he was going to do, and then returned to the city and and cleaned out the temple. And the events here in this passage that we're looking at up to verse 17 occurred on Monday after the triumphant entry into the city. So let's read uh, verses 12 to 17, and then we'll make some more comments It says, Jesus then went up to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So once again, returning to to Bethany. 
So because of the religious activity that was happening at the temple, which was you know, busy with people and, and that activity required animals for sacrifice, there was the establishment of a market there. There were, there was, um, there were customers and there was a need for them to have goods and services. So a market sprung up for these animals uh, and different things, money uh, changing and stuff like that. And why was that? Well, there was a provision in the Old Testament law for people who lived at a great distance from the temple to be able to bring money and purchase with that money animals or other things for offerings nearer to the temple so they would not have to transport that animal over a great distance. And here's an example in Deuteronomy 14, verses um, 23 to 26. It says, And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Interesting purpose statement, isn't it? That you may learn to fear the Lord your God. That's why they would do these, do these offerings and eat these things at the temple. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it, that is the stuff you're going to bring, you otherwise would bring, you're to exchange it for money, take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, wine or similar drink, or whatever, for whatever your heart desires. There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. So sell, maybe sell there at, uh, in, in your hometown, and then go to uh, Jerusalem where the temple was, well, the tabernacle earlier on, of course, and then buy and partake there. Remember when they made the offerings, they were not just like putting something on the altar and having it all burned up and go away. They would eat some of it. There was a fellowship meal associated with this. So this is why the market was in existence. So enterprising, but perhaps not very sanctified people uh, took up having a marketplace here. They set up tables and booths for exchanging currency, selling small sacrificial animals like doves and probably general goods. And uh, I was hunting around looking in these parallel passages for did they sell larger animals? And I couldn't find it until I remembered John chapter 2 when the Lord cleansed the temple earlier. And there in John chapter 2 and verse 14, it gives us a little insight into what was there as well. It says... Uh, when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, verse 14 of John 2, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. So not only were they selling small animals like doves, pigeons, they were selling, I mean, cattle, large offering animals for the work of the temple. And so those uh, animals would be more cumbersome, maybe a nearby market too for them. Herod's temple was large enough to accommodate this kind of activity. It had all these colonnade, colonnaded porches and, and open areas and things. And so you can imagine um, 
you know, an atmosphere almost like a, not quite, but almost like a kind of a carnival type of atmosphere. Not exactly, but you know, people going around buying, selling boots, it's crazy. There's all kinds of animals, the smells, the, the money changing hands, the exchange of different types of currency if you were from outside of Jerusalem and needed to do that, and just a, a, an amazing amount of activity going on there. So when the Lord goes in to cleanse the temple out, he's not only attacking the people who bought and sold, but the leaders who allowed them to do that. You think they could do that without permission from the religious leaders? Absolutely not. And probably they did a permit system like what we have today, right? You can have a table if you pay so much or whatever, you know. I can't, you can imagine that that would certainly be uh, an income stream for some of those, uh, well, entrepreneurial priests, we'll say. Perhaps. Uh, I don't know exactly all how that worked, but um, the leaders would take this as a direct threat to their authority when Jesus comes in. Um, you know, they were allowing this kind of commercial activity to, to occur in connection with the sacrificial system, um, but they were not focusing the temple on the holy purposes for which it was designed. Like what? Prayer worship of God. And so this was treated by them in their minds as a direct threat to their authority when it should have been treated as a wake-up call. And some of the priests would have seen the Lord do this, and I would hope that they would be a little red in the face. And they would realize, oh, we should not have been doing this in God's temple. So they, and they didn't have to set up a market inside the temple precincts. It was more about money than about faith in God. And because it was more about money, I suspect there was a lot of thievery and greed operational there in that market. You might not have to think hard to imagine that the captive audience, oh, these guys have got to come and offer sacrifices so we can jack up the prices like hot dogs at a ball game, you know, and really get uh, some profit from this. So that perhaps uh, maximized the profits of these uh, clever entrepreneurs. Well, in all of this, uh, the scripture says that uh, the Lord did that cleaning out. He drove people out. Of course, it's not known how long this condition lasted. They might have just came back, come back the next day and set up shop again. But he says this, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Uh, let's go to Jeremiah seven eleven and see this in its home context here. Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Um, where can we go back to? Oh, did I say? Oh, yes. So, uh, let me just mention, I didn't, did I finish reading verse 19, or 13 rather? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So I address these two parts of this quotation. Jeremiah seven eleven, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? So remember, the Lord is inveighing against Israel for their misuse of the temple. Ezekiel did the same thing. This is why God left. Remember, he left the temple and then he's going to come back in the millennium in the rebuilt temple. So he quotes uh, Jeremiah 7, 11. Here's the den of thieves. 
The people of Jeremiah's day did all kinds of evil things. Look at verse 9 of Jeremiah 7. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, come become a den of thieves to you? Is that cool? So they did all kinds of evil. They came to the temples if nothing were wrong. They made it a den of thieves. Unsaved people plus money often tends toward that direction if there's no restraints, right? The Lord also quoted from Isaiah 56, 7. So let's go back there and see that in context. Isaiah 56, verse number 7. Um, he's telling the people to keep justice and do righteousness in the early part of the chapter. Um, Verse 3, Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house And within my walls, a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling my Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. I hope you caught that. What you have here is sons of the foreigner, meaning Gentiles, are going to be able to have a place in God's house. That was totally foreign to the Jewish mindset before this, but Isaiah has a number of passages in it which talk about the salvation of the Gentiles. And they're bringing, being brought near to God. Well, what does Ephesians 2 say? Yeah, thank you to the Lord. Ephesians 2, you were strangers and foreigners apart from the promises of God, and yet God has brought you near by the blood of Christ. And so God is going to make that millennial temple a house of prayer for all nations. And of course, the Lord Jesus here is not so much emphasizing the all nations part of that quote, but the house of prayer part. And it had become a house of merchandise rather than a house of prayer. So the Lord demonstrates a quick knowledge of the scriptures. He's able to quote these things. Perhaps he thought about them the night before. Earlier in the chapter in Isaiah, God promised salvation would come to the Gentiles and those believers among the nations would have a special place before God and be able to participate with him uh, in the worship of the temple and that such a temple will be the house of prayer, not just for Jews. This reminds us of John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have other sheep, finish it in your mind, which are not of this fold. It's exactly what is being talked about here. He, this is ancient truth that Jesus is bringing to the people of Israel, that the Gentiles too will have a place at the table of God's program and part of his, be a part of his household. I think this matter has some good application to the church. We're not a marketing center. 
You do not set up a coffee store or other shop because there is a ready-made market of people available. You know, they're a captive audience, so to speak. We want the emphasis here to be on worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and the like, prayer, obviously, and not commercial types of things getting us sidetracked from what our main purpose is. Interesting application. So the Lord does that. That's going to cause, uh, obviously, a major problem with the the religious leaders. This is the initial confrontation of of the Lord with them. And uh, then it says in verse 14, there's ministry that goes on there at the temple. We see praise going on at the temple of the Lord, and we see criticism. And that's the second part of our message this evening. We'll just spend a few more minutes in these verses. It says, The blind and, la- uh, blind, blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. He healed them. The Lord continued doing what he had done throughout his ministry. I mean, this is actually getting to the 11th hour, isn't it? Days before his crucifixion, if this is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night with the disciples, Friday he's going to die. Monday... You'd think he might have things on his mind, but yet he heals these blind and lame ones who come to him in the temple, the kinds of people who are castaways in the Jewish leader's mindset. They've done something bad. They don't don't have God's grace. God's cursed them. The Lord is healing them. The miracles are now so frequent that they barely register on our minds when we read them. You know, you can just read over verse 14 and, well, well there he goes again. More, more miracles, no big deal. Next verse, please. Nevertheless, do not overlook the power that is evident in these miraculous healings. Don't overlook the compassion of our Lord, and don't overlook the, the vast influence and impact that this would have on the lives of those that were healed. Can you imagine being lame or blind and suddenly being able to see and being able to say on Saturday, the guy who healed me has now been killed. On Sunday, the guy who healed me now has been raised from the dead. You think that would induce some people to think about their belief system and thank God and become followers of Christ? Absolutely. Now, after that, it says, well, there's a little criticism here. I'll come to that. But it says that the young people were seeing what the Lord did. And uh, maybe they were repeating what they heard others say during his entry into the city, Hosanna to the son of David. And that's in the end of verse 15 there. Save now, we pray, son of David. They recognized him as the rightful heir to the throne of David and were applying to him language that was directed toward God in Psalm 118.25. Why don't you turn there to that psalm and just keep your finger there for a moment. We'll visit it for a second here. Psalm 118.25 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of of the Lord. So these are praise words directed toward God, and these are directing them toward the Messiah, the son of David. Please do note that this is an historical record, an ancient one at that, 
We have multiple eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, far more than almost any other person in ancient history. And this is a critical event, a critical juncture in his life on the earth, our Lord's life. The chief priests and the scribes saw all of this, the healings, well, the cleansing of the temple, the children crying out in the temple, and and this amplified the threat of Jesus in their minds. And so it says in verse 15, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. They were indignant. That word is rarely used in the Bible. It's a very strong kind of emotional word. Once it's used in the Old Testament of Nebuchadnezzar in the English translation. Remember, he got mad sometimes, especially when people didn't want to obey him, like bowing down to his statue. In the New Testament, it's not only used here, but also in Matthew 26, 8 of the disciples. They were indignant at the other disciples. Once the Lord was indignant about something and once a synagogue official was mad that the the Lord had healed in his synagogue on the Sabbath. It's rarity, this word's rarity, is probably indicative of its strength. They were angry, kind of like Jonah. You know, he was angry, wasn't he? Remember that? Indignant, we could translate for Jonah's idea of, of things as well. They perceived this to be a wrong done by the Lord. That is him receiving the praise of these people, what, he, what they think, I believe he should have done and said, look, quiet people, you can't say that to me. Well, he couldn't do that because what they were saying was true. It was accurate. It was appropriate for the king who had just ridden in on the colt, the foal of a donkey, into the city to display his kingship over them. So they perceived, these leaders perceived it to be a wrong, but it was a right. And uh, they thought he was inducing wrong in the young people and others. So they asked the question, do you hear what these are saying? It reads something like this. You can't be letting them say that about you, can you? I mean, how can you be letting them say that about you? It was inconceivable to them that any human would receive such praise from other people as Jesus was receiving and not rebuke them for misplaced praise. Of course, this is only the beginning of praise that Jesus deserves, right? He deserves way more than this. He will receive in the future that which he deserves. Praise to God can be given to Jesus because he is the God-man, as we understand from our combined knowledge of all the rest of Scripture. And uh, he heard what the crowds were saying, and he was not about to tell them to be quiet and not about to disclaim it. Instead, he cited a third scripture, this one from Psalm 8, verse number 2. Psalm 8 and verse number 2. I'm going to read it from there first, and then I'll read it in Matthew's rendition of it. Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And then in Matthew 21, Jesus' response to the religious leaders was, yes, I'm hearing what they're saying. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So he upbraids them for 
not recognizing that these young people are simply calling out in a God-ordained fashion about this, this praise toward him who deserved it. So then he left them and went out to Bethany after that. But to the point of this quotation, um, notice that it says in verse in Matthew, it says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected what? Praise. In Psalm 8, it says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. So what do we do about that? That's an interesting little conundrum. First of all, this praise of God in Psalm 8 is applied to Jesus. Recognize that, okay? First of all, he deserves that praise. Um, secondly, the Septuagint, as it's called, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word praise instead of strength. And so that's where praise comes from. That's where Matthew is quoting from directly, word for word there. Although, and I, you know, a lot more study could be invested here. I have not done terribly much study with this but I will say a little bit more about it in just a moment. We should be satisfied to take it that the Lord Jesus knew what he was talking about and that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, is correct in its use of the original Hebrew text. But let me say just slightly more than that. Songs of worship in the Old Testament often ascribe in their praise to God the attribute of strength. Let's look at Psalm 29.1 for one example. In Psalm 29.1, it's a psalm of David, and he says, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. I know you've heard that praise of God before, but I'm just calling it to your attention here because of the word strength. Psalm 59, verse 16 Uh, does something similar. When you praise God and you ascribe to him strength, you you are describing an attribute of his, and by doing so, you're praising him. Psalm 59, I said, verse 16, it says, But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. And then Psalm 68 is another one here where praise and strength are tied together. Psalm 68, 34. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. What we're seeing here is this connection between praise and strength, which is my belief is that that's why we have this you know, switch from strength to praise because they're really saying the same basic thing. God has ordained strength out of the mouth of his people because he has ordained their praises which speak of his great power. Let me say that again. God has ordained strength out of the mouth of his people because he has ordained their praises which speak of his great power. There's no contradiction then between strength and praise. We ought to remember when we praise God to praise him for his strength.
his ability, his power, his omnipotence, his sovereign rule of the universe. Instead of like Jonah complaining about God sovereignly choosing mercy toward people who don't deserve it, rather to praise him for giving mercy to people who don't deserve it. The end of Psalm 8-2 is very fitting. Uh, We read this, because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. God's strength is such that he will silence the enemies of his people. And that's exactly what the praise of the youngsters was doing to the Jewish religious leaders. I can imagine them sputtering mad, unable to even speak about how indignant they were. The praise of the little ones put them to shame. They couldn't believe it. God's strength overcame their control, they thought, their control over the operation of the temple. It's interesting that God uses little children here to express profound truths. Now, I don't know how little little is. They obviously were able to speak. They were obviously able to understand some of the context of the situation, but they might have been 8, 10, 12 years old. Who knows exactly? Young people. In modern English, we have the phrase, out of the mouth of babes, right? That came right from the Bible. That's why Bible education is so important because there's so many things in the English language and concepts that we get that are derived from this, that we had to have, have to have a basic education in it so we can understand them better. Um, that phrase is in fairly common use, even in non-religious circles. They speak more than they know when they use that phrase out of the mouth of babes. As we grow older, I wonder if we lose the youngsters innocent and somewhat profound view of life. We become too smart, too scientific, we know better, and we, we can't just praise God for who he is and the, uh, express the kind of pure emotion of what is going on in a situation like that. Verse 17 uh, uh, tells of the Lord's departure back to Bethany. To stay for the night, he did not have a home in Jerusalem to stay. And even if he did, I mean, the city was packed out with worshipers. So he he stayed where he had made other arrangements. Remember the Lord saying to that one person who said, I will follow you. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. He had no home. He was homeless. Now, he wasn't homeless. He had... He had maybe a hundred homes, in a sense, around Israel, people who would have him stay there with him as he was able to be blessed by their hospitality. But he did not have a place to lay his head. So he went out to Bethany where he had other arrangements to stay. Tuesday would see continued confrontation with the religious leaders, but it was Monday night in the context, and he went out and lodged there. Notice how in this passage there's both the goodness and the severity of God. In, in terms of goodness, he healed the blind and the lame. And he blessed those who called out to him as Hosanna, the son of David, because of, by his very presence, he was encouraging and strengthening them as they praised him for his strength in God. And then there were others that he judged, the religious leaders, those people who should have been joining the young people in their praise, but instead were criticizing the Lord, and so he 
lodges basically judgment against them, uh, criticizing them for their position. But behold the goodness and the severity of God on this Monday of the Passion Week. We shall wait until later to see about Tuesday and the other days. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've been able to share the word together. Lord, uh, we ask your blessing that it would be an encouragement to us, help us to have a kind of uh, full-throated praise of our God and King, Jesus, even if we're not in that category of the mouths of babes and infants, but we're older, may we praise you for your strength, may we honor you for your word and all your goodness toward us. And Lord, I pray that more people will come to receive you as their king, as their Lord. Lord, we have a busy week this week with Art Fair. Sustain us in that. Help us, Lord, with a couple of matters in the building maintenance that need attention, and they've been gnawing away at me. Uh, And I pray that you would provide the assistance that we need for that. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would keep us close to you, Uh, Help us to rest this evening soundly and to be able to tackle the uh, affairs of things that you've assigned for us to do over the next days. In Jesus' name, amen.